question that I want to ask now is, who's the greatest? Now that seems to be a, a common thing among people who are, uh, let's say, fans of sports. Who's the greatest baseball player? You're on ESPN, and they'll be challenging of who they think the greatest is. Or the greatest basketball player. Is it Michael Jordan? Is it King James? Um, who's the greatest musician? Of course, everybody has their favorite. That's the greatest. Who's the greatest singer? Uh, who's the greatest writer uh, of books or movies? What's the greatest movie? Uh, Ricky Henderson actually knew who the greatest was as he uh, broke a record for stolen bases. Uh, as he slid in and he stood up and they were celebrating it, he said, I am the greatest. Of course, there's the great boxer, uh, Muhammad Ali, and what did he say? I'm the greatest. And so, there it is. That's what they proclaim. Now, we would probably, and I would hopefully say, that there's no question, hands down, Jesus is the greatest. Jesus is the greatest because He's a servant. He had to serve us. If He didn't serve us, we would not see Him as the greatest. He served us by being the ransom and paying for our sins. That's why He is the greatest, because of the servant attitude that He took to put us in the place that we are. Now, as we uh, are going to be turning to Luke today, in Luke 22, it is, that's where we have been at recently, we um, are going to be in verse 24 through 30. And as we've progressed through time, we've seen that there has been a plan to destroy Jesus by the religious leaders. We've seen that week after week that we've studied in this area. Now, he's, they're going to be aided by the betrayer. It uh, was one of Jesus' own followers. One of his own followers was going to turn against him and help the leaders get Jesus to arrest him, to kill him, to destroy him. And it's almost at that time, but not quite. We're not quite there yet because as we looked at it last week, Jesus had gathered with his disciples to observe the Passover meal. And at that Passover, it was a great opportunity to teach. And boy, did he teach. He taught all the different things that we're dealing with with the uh, Passover, him being the fulfillment of it, all the details that are in that. And he taught about a lot of other things. In John, we see that he presented the Holy Spirit, and uh, he talked about his return. A lot of things that they needed to know there that last night. Well, sometime that evening, there arose a dispute among the disciples and this provided the occasion for Jesus to further instruct the disciples and admonish them. Now, this is the setting for our passage that we're dealing with today in Luke 22. If there are any other ones that have tuned in, I invite you to make a comment. Show us that you're, uh, you're with us, that we're kind of like at church. We may not see each other, but we'll know that you're there worshiping with us. I'd like to have all of you there. And uh, if you can't make it 10 o'clock, you should be able to see this uh, later. But um, 
we want to uh, move on and we'll be at Luke 22 verse 24 and it reads and there rose also a dispute among them as to which one of them was regarded to be greatest and he said to them the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them and those who have authority over them are called benefactors but it is not this way with you but the one who is the greatest among you must become like the youngest, and the leader like the servant. For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table, or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and just as my Father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and you'll sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Let's pray. Father, as we go into your word, we realize this is, this is the very word of God. You are speaking to us today. You are showing us a truth that it is servanthood. That's what makes Christians great. And that is what Christ was all about as he came here to die for us. Now as we look into your truth, Lord, we pray for your Holy Spirit to guide us and to get insights that we have not thought of before that can glorify your name. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, well, we have a dispute. We have a dispute about greatness. The disciples of all people are the ones disputing. Now Jesus had just announced... And that was like in verse 21, 22, 23. That's where we closed off last week. He had announced that one of the disciples was going to betray him. One of their very own. Now Luke, it's interesting, immediately puts this section right after that. And it's a discussion that starts as Jesus says that to them. They get a discussion amongst themselves. And they're overwhelmed. They're shocked by what Jesus has just said. Of course they should be. There's going to be one of us betraying? Are you kidding me? Really? Who is it? Well, it's certainly not me. And somebody says, well, it's not me. There's no way that I would ever betray it. And so they get that kind of discussion going. But it starts turning south real quickly. They drift into what is a discussion, into an argument. And now it's not even about Jesus and him being betrayed. It's about them being the greatest. Well, it's not me because I'm going to be sitting right by Jesus in the kingdom. They're waiting for that kingdom to come. And so each one of them thinks that they are the greatest. They will be right there with him. They're oblivious of what Jesus had just told them, and really what that means. They're not sympathizing for him at all. And so, there it was. They had been through the Passover, listening to just overwhelming teaching by Jesus, being a part of this Passover, participating in it. And now we have this going on. Oh boy, I'll tell you what, these guys, these guys are something else, aren't they? Well, before we get too far down the line on that, we have a lot of things to be instructed by, too. You see, these guys are going to be left alone. Jesus is going to leave this world pretty shortly. And the gospel 
is going to go out to the world by these guys. Of all people, these guys. And it's almost like if it had been me in Jesus' spot, I might have said, we better delay the crucifixion. I don't think these guys are ready yet. Matter of fact, we might have to get a whole different crew because they're not going to be able to take this gospel out. Of course, Jesus knows this whole story and what they're going to do. They're going to have the story of redemption in the very hands of themselves as they take it out to the world. These are the ones. Now, it says this dispute. There arose a dispute. The word is philonieka. And it's dealing with love of arguing. You've heard of Philadelphia, which is city of brotherly love. Phila. Phila. Philo is love. Uh, it's a love of arguing. It's a love of strife and disagreement. These disciples, I'm sure they had this happen a lot. And as a matter of fact, they did. We can scripturally see that. You know, they are uh, not so subtle. Of course, you think of James and John. They're the sons of thunder. And you have Peter and some of the other ones. And uh, it, I imagine they probably could have come to blows within those three and a half years, spending so much time together. And uh, here they are doing what they have done quite frequently. If we were to go back to Luke chapter 9, in verse uh, 46... An argument started among them as to which of them might be the greatest. But Jesus, knowing what they were thinking in their heart, took a child and stood him by his side. And of course, we know that story with the children and a child, and to, to be uh, humble as they would be. In Matthew 20, verse 20 through 24, we get a, uh, another instance where you have the greatness of the apostles, at least they think they're great at that time, and uh, and deals with the mother of the sons of Zebedee, James and John. The mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down and making a request to him, and he said to her, What do you wish? She said to him, Command that in your kingdom these two sons of mine may sit one at your right and one on your left. But Jesus answered, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? And of course they said to him, We are able. Yes, we can do it. He said to them, My cup you shall drink, but to sit on my right and on my left. This is not mine to give, but it's for those whom it has been prepared by my Father. So there again, they think they deserve to sit right at that power seat with Jesus himself in Mark chapter 9, verse 31 through 34. We get another instance here, and it's, a lot of times it's dealing with his arrest and death and burial. And here it is in Mark 9, verse 31. It says, for he was teaching his disciples and telling them the Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. But they did not understand the statement, and they were afraid to ask him. They came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he began to question them. What were you discussing on the way, as if he didn't know? 
But they kept silent, for on the way they had discussed with one another which of them was the greatest. And there we go again. They, time and time again, had these arguments of who's the best, who's the greatest. And uh, Jesus, this night, at this time, as we're in Luke 22, washes their feet. And I have to wonder, it sure seems like the way it's set up, of course John uh, is the one who brings that forth. He washed their feet. What a timely lesson to do that right after this. As if they're saying that they're the greatest and that he gets down on his hands and knees with a towel and starts washing their feet. Of course we know that he is the one who serves. And he's teaching them a valuable lesson that they will never forget. So that's dealing with the dispute over greatness. Well now let's contrast the two kinds of greatness. Jesus does that. And we see it here in verse, starting at verse 25. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who have authority over them are called benefactors. There we have it in verse 25. The Gentiles have greatness, all the great leaders. And so he said to them this. It starts off in verse 25. He said to them, in Matthew and in Mark, it's also recorded as, you know that, as he said to them, he says, you know that the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them. You know this. You know all about this. You know about the tyrants and the dictators. The one who uh, are absolutely sovereign that dominate over the people. It wasn't a democracy there. It wasn't a situation where the people had some say-so, like a republic. See, they had kings, they had monarchs, they had Caesars, they had pharaohs back in the Bible days, the ancient days. The Gentiles' kings will use their greatness. They will let others know how great they are. And they flaunt it. And so they did. They dictated, they dominated, they lorded it over, as it says here. Your disciples, you know about that. And he says that they're called benefactors. They wanted to be called benefactors. They even said to the people, call us benefactors. I'm a benefactor. And he said, what is a benefactor? Well, it's a doer of good for the people. Uh, so that would mean that in that sense. Uh, maybe they are good for the people in some ways, a doer of good. Some people would probably say, I don't care. I don't care how corrupt that that leader may be. It's still good for me. And so that would be a, a benefactor. They've done a lot of good for me. Well, you can think of some of the ones who were called. They called themselves benefactors. It was Nero and Caesar Augustus and the Ptolemies. And they were benefactors. Eurigetes. Uh, energizers. They were the ones who made it happen. They are the ones who have absolute authority. The top man lords it over. Uh, they demanded the title of benefactor. And so that's the way that somebody can be when they're in a manner of authority. 
and having all that power and influence. So that's verse uh, 25. We go into verse 26 now and we see the contrast between what a Gentile greatness is versus Christian greatness. What is Christian greatness? Well, it's Jesus Christ. That's the only way. And we're really going to see something or somebody that's great. So let's read verse 26. But it's not this way with you, you believers. You're not in like the Gentiles. But the one who is the greatest among you must become like the youngest and the leader like the servant. For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. The servant, Christ, is the one who is great. Jesus is a faithful servant, though he alone deserves eternal supremacy. He is the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. He deserves all the glory. And he certainly does from the Christians. Well, have you ever gone out in the night? Of course you have. And look up into the sky. See all the billions of stars. There's more than billions. Because there's billions of galaxies. Now we've all done that. We're amazed. And we marvel over it. There is a, a, a galaxy called the Andromeda galaxy. It's 200 million light years away. Not just 200 million. 200 million miles away. How much is that? That's incredible. 200 million light years away. Uh, it's composed of 200 million stars that are brighter than our sun. And uh, even the Hubble telescope cannot go to the end of the universe. That's incredible. Well, Jesus created all this. That is the Supreme One. He is the Supreme One. The entire works of the universe came into existence through the Godhead. Jesus Christ being a Creator. Now, here on earth, He showed a glimpse of His glory to Peter, James, and John, those apostles that happened to be sitting at the table who are saying how great they are. And He's sitting there with them, and they should have remembered the Mount of Transfiguration, where Jesus showed his great glory. Uh, John, also in the book of Revelation, saw Jesus Christ in a powerful way in Revelation 1. And at Isle of Patmos, it scared him. He fell down, and he was to get back up. The glory of God with the splendor of heaven came here to earth, took on human flesh, dwelt among us, and He went to the point of the penalty of death. And He took the form of a bondservant all the way to the cross. What a servant it is we have. And that is what is great. But yet, he has ultimate authority. He said, My Father has granted me a kingdom. Of course, we uh, 
read that in chapter 22, verse 29. He has the kingdom. He's the king of it. Well, Jesus also served through many trials. He was a servant. It was through trials and tribulations, criticism, the opposition, all those three years that he constantly had. Have you ever had opposition? Have you ever had criticism? I'm sure you have. We all have. How do we respond to it? Have you ever been treated unfairly? Of course. Have you ever been misunderstood? Of course. Have you ever really been questioned about your motivation? Of course. All of those things Jesus faced constantly throughout His ministry. We know He had challenges from Satan, temptation, all the way to Gethsemane. And we could say, if that's the kind of treatment that I get, then I quit. Well, if you're a Christian, you can't quit. You want to give up, but you can't do that. You look at Christ. He's a servant. You keep on serving faithfully. He will honor that. He did it faithfully. It was the joy that was set before Him. It was that cross. And He did it willfully as a servant. Another thing about Jesus that He served in loneliness sometimes, even though He had the twelve disciples. He had said, Behold, an hour is coming, it's already come, for you to be scattered, each to his own home, to leave me alone, and yet I'm not alone, because the Father is with me. In Psalm 69, 20, reproach has broken my heart, and I'm so sick. And I looked for sympathy, but there was none, and for comforters, but I found none. Disciples like sheep scattered, they left. His fellowship with the Father was a sustaining factor. Another thing about Jesus, the one we identify so much with, is that He served because of His great love towards His people. He served because of His love towards us. And John 13.1 says that Jesus loved His own who were in the world and that He loved them to the uttermost. The Apostle Paul said in Galatians 2.20, who loved me and delivered himself up for me. He loved me and delivered himself up for crucifixion for me. Paul reaches a true crescendo in Romans 8 about the love of God. We overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. We are more than conquerors. Through Christ who loved us. And then he says this. Nothing, absolutely nothing, shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Jesus Christ our Lord. So, he served because he loved us so much. Great love. Paul served because he was captivated. By Christ's love. Do you want to serve the Lord and serve the church, serve others, because Christ loves you so much? That is what it is so much about. We should be serving because God's love for us is just incredible. His sacrificial death. That's a great motive for 
anything and everything we do in service for Him. And then He deepens that as He says in 26, you must become like the youngest. Gives an example here, and the leader like the servant. The young are considered at that time in the culture to be the least honored. You see, it was age and honor that went before youth. And so it was like they were underneath the elderly, or the elders, the ones who were older than them. Um, as far as uh, the leader and the servant, same kind of situation there. Verse 27, he says, For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table, or the one who serves? Well, that's obvious. It's the one who is being served. He's sitting at the table. And so Jesus says that. Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But, I am among you as the one who serves. I am the one who serves. This is Christ. He turns the table here, as they're reclining at the table, and he says, usually it's the guest or the host that would be the greater. And he's served by the waiter, uh, or a slave. Obviously, the one who sits and eats at the table is greater. Well, that's the usual answer, but Jesus says, but I am among you as the one who serves. Then he Wash their feet? Can you imagine? And he served them right there in doing that. Well, quite a lesson that Jesus is teaching. This is how one is great. They serve. We go to our last part, 28 through 30. It's called the motivation of greatness. You are those who have stood by me in my trials. And just as my Father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and you will sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Hmm. That is truly awesome. For the disciples had to be very encouraging because they were caught again Telling how great each one of them was. Then what does Jesus do? Well, I'm sure he grieved over them. In a sense, the petty quarreling that's going on. And he knew that they would soon forsake him and flee. And he has gracious words of commendation. This is the grace of God. Did they deserve this? Not at all. And he gives them overwhelming news here. I am overwhelmed by this. Jesus said, You're still with me. You have stood by me in my trials. He wasn't always alone in his trials. They were with him. They backed him up. And there they were at this time, right there standing with him. So he says something positive. You've remained here. John 1.16 says, Grace upon grace. He's full of grace. Wow. Incredible. He's like a father who's trying to teach his child, a young child, some new task. Well, the child just goofs all up, doesn't get it right. 
fails, doesn't do it perfect. And what does a good father do? He sees this little child. And even though the child doesn't do it right, he says, hey, here's what you did right. You're getting it. You're doing good. Keep at it. That's the way. That's the way you can do it. And even though the dad could just yell at him and say, aren't you paying attention? Aren't you listening to me? Can't you do this? No. He wants to be gracious. And so we look at 29 and 30. It really builds up here now. Christ here promised the disciples, it's like it's a covenant, that they would eat and drink his table in the kingdom. They've been saying all along that they're great and they want to be right there with Jesus in the kingdom. They're going to be the top. And he says, you know what? You're going to be sitting right there with me at that table in the kingdom. And you're going to be sitting on thrones. This is what they've been talking about. But he says, you have to serve. You have to serve first. And that they will do. They've been doing it. He gives some words of grace here. And you know, the Lord will reward every one of His servants far beyond what we could ever imagine. Far beyond what we deserve. Absolutely. I don't know exactly what the Lord means when He mentions future rewards. It's got to be more than what I can imagine. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6 that the saints will judge the world and the angels. I'm overwhelmed by that. You know, what? What does that mean? Apparently the apostles will be leading uh, in, in their roles as they sit on thrones. What a task they will have. And they will get what Christ wanted to give them. They didn't have to go around bragging and saying they were the greatest. Christ already knew. And it's appointing what they will, will be doing there, doing them there. What a joyous fellowship that uh, awaits all of us in this presence. If we could see now what He has prepared for us, then wouldn't we be like what 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty eight says, steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that our toil is not in vain. It's not empty. It's not in vain. All of our work and servanthood that we have here is going to count for something in the kingdom of God for the rest of eternity. What you do here counts heavily of how you will serve the capacity of serving in heaven. In the great news? They're going to inherit the kingdom. They're going to have thrones. They're going to be in that kingdom with Him. Sitting at the table, fellowshipping right with Him. Wow. He tells them he could have just gone off on them after their tirade about arguing about their greatness. That is an attribute of Christ. Attribute of God that is overwhelming. His grace. 
It highly motivates us when we read these kind of things. Not only the disciples had to be motivated. Maybe they didn't understand all that at the time, but later they did. Because they turned the world upside down as they took the gospel to a lost world. Love. Grace. Rewards. Eternity. We've just seen some of that teaching by Jesus just in a few short verses. There's a lot to be learned. And of course, as he was a living example, as he washed their feet, they had to remember that from there on. He was a servant. He was a servant. And I have to say that I want to be better as a servant. I want to be serving God. I want to be serving His people. I want to be serving His church. Whatever it is, that is what we are assigned to do here. That's really why we are here. We are to serve God, to learn how to serve. We're just learning. There's a church in Santa Fe, New Mexico. It has a hand-lettered sign over the only door into the sanctuary. In big letters it says, Servant's Entrance. Servant's Entrance. Now, there isn't any other way in or out of that church sanctuary except through the service door. The Servant's Entrance. That's how every church should be. And we as the body of Christ throughout the world, throughout this country, and throughout our community, and this church right here, Grace Community Church, that's how it should be. It should be a place for servants only. That's what we are. We're servants. We're slaves. Slaves of Christ to serve others. Let that be convicting to us. Who is the greatest in God's kingdom? was Christ and those who humbly serve as Jesus did. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, great God, You are awesome in all Your ways. You are the God who deserves all the worship. You sent the servant of all servants, Your Son, Jesus Christ who is the epitome of humility, the epitome of servanthood, because He came here to serve, not to be served, and to give His life as a ransom for the many. And that, Lord, makes us desire to worship You, to serve You. That's what we are appointed to do in this world. And for the rest of eternity, we get to serve the King of Kings as you serve us. And in light of all of this passage and what you have given us, dear Lord, thank you for this truth. We want to be enabled by your Holy Spirit to be this kind of servants that you want us to be. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.